morning, church. I hope you're doing well today. If you don't know me, my name's Billy. Uh, I get the privilege to serve here as one of the pastors, and it is an incredible privilege to get to serve you guys. Uh, today, we're going to be continuing on in our series called Knowing God, where we have been walking through uh, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Uh, if you're new, then you're, you're getting a, a good start. We've only preached two weeks before this in this series. And so uh, if you, like Bo was talking about, this is a copy of the Jesus Storybook Bible. If you do not have a copy, we would love to give you a copy. Uh, this is for you. This is for your family. This is for your kids. Uh, this is just an incredible resource uh, that, that this lady, Sally Lloyd-Jones, has written uh, that points to Jesus from Genesis to Revelation. And so I uh, hope you'll join us on that journey. Uh, if you would like one of these, just stop by the Blue Tent after service. Uh, sign up, and we'd love to give you uh, one of these. And so this morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. If you have your Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, I did, I felt like the Lord really, as I was praying this morning and, and praying for you pretty much all week, the thing that I feel like God has put on my heart uh, to, to share and the prayer that I've been praying for you guys is, is simply this. Uh, this passage that we're studying this morning can almost come across as if God is not in control, right? As if things are going wrong, things are going bad, and they're outside of the grip of a sovereign God. And I want you to know nothing could be further from the truth. And I want you to know in your life, when you feel like things are going all wrong, and you're, you're maybe uh, encountering things or, or experiencing things that you feel like are just not good and not right, I want you to know that some of the times where it seems like God is the most out of control is when he's doing his actual greatest work. You know, why do I say that? I say that because when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, if you and I were there to experience the cross of Jesus Christ and him dying, we would have very much thought, there's no way God is doing this. There's no way that God is in this. But when you back up off the entire scripture and read it from Genesis to Revelation, God was there. And he was crushing his son, but he was crushing his son for his glory and for our good, the salvation of our souls. And so as we read this, this passage this morning, I want you to keep in mind that we serve a sovereign God that is in control and that it's always working for our good and for His glory. So let's read together uh, Genesis chapter uh, 1. Let me pray for us and we'll start. Father, we love you. Again, God, as we open your word, God, we need your help. Lord, would you give us eyes to see and know who you are? to know you as a person. God, would you give us ears to listen, God, to your word and take it as you speaking to us, not a man preaching, but God, you speaking to us through your word. God, would you show us who you are? God, would you show us our own sin and where we need to repent and turn back to you? And God, would you show us our Savior? We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Starting in verse 1, it says this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it 
as well. And so today what we're going to see is how sin entered into the world. Uh, we're going to see, we've already seen in the, in the book of Genesis, the first two chapters, God's perfect creation. He created a garden that was perfect. He created fellowship with God. He created animals. Everything was in place. It was perfect. Fellowship with God was perfect. But this morning, we see that spiral uh, out of control in a very real way. And we see it through uh, sin in the life of Adam and Eve. And so today, I want to point out three things so you know where I'm going. The first one is the nature of sin. The second point is the result or the consequence of sin. And then the last point is the hope of the gospel. So if you feel uh, uh, depressed through the first two points, just know I'm getting to the good news of the gospel. It's just going to take me a little while, and I think we can learn uh, through it all. So the first point, the nature of sin. In verses 1 through 6, we see a few things. Letter A, we see the craftiness of a serpent, right? You, you know this is the snake in the garden, the serpent. Uh, this is the devil. This is uh, the devil uh, that was one of God's created uh, angels that had fallen and rebelled against God, and he had come back as an enemy of God and trying to thwart the plans of God and everything God wanted to do. And so we see this serpent, this devil, slip, slither into the garden, and he has uh, an encounter with Adam and Eve. And I think we can learn it's a very crafty encounter. If he is the enemy of God that wants to keep us from living for God and, and walking in God's purposes for our lives and glorifying God in our lives, he is very crafty and he is very good at distracting us from that. And so uh, we see, uh, we, we can learn a lot about our enemy from this passage, his craftiness. And so one thing you can learn is that he attacks the character of God. That's what he does. He attacks the character of God. He questions the goodness of God. Think about the whole Genesis 1 and 2. We've seen God create, and it was good. God created, and it was good. God created, and it was very good. Everything was perfect, but then Satan slithers in, and his first question is, is it really good? And so he begins to question the goodness of God, and he, he somehow creates doubts to the truthfulness of God in the mind of Adam and Eve. He asks the question, did God really say and he uses it in a connotation where it's almost saying did God really say God's kind of holding out on you if, if he really uh, if you ate from this tree then you would become like him he don't want you to become like him it would be better if you were like him you would actually make a better God than him there's more freedom in living for yourself and being the own Lord of your life than living for God and he was lying and he was wrong he doesn't have our best in mind with what he does, but he, what he does is slithers in and he does whatever he can to create this doubt that God is not good, that God is not for us, that he can get us. Uh, and when he gets us to that point where we don't trust God, where we don't believe that God is good, that God is the best Lord of our life, then he can really manipulate us to do whatever he wants us to do. This is why it's so important that we know the character of God. It's what this series is all about this year, is knowing God. Because when we know God, when we know His character, His immutability, that He never changes, then no matter what situation we face in this life, we can trust the God that never changes, though our circumstances will always be changing. Not only does He attack the character of God, listen, letter, he, he quotes the Word of God, but he twists it just a little bit to create doubt and unbelief in Eve. That's what he does is he twists the word of God. 
So, so here's the thing that we got to understand. The devil is smart. Like he literally will come to us with his Bible open and will quote scripture to us. But he'll quote it out of context. He'll twist it and, and just manipulate it a little bit to get us to follow and go in the wrong direction. Look closely at what he does. He misuses the word of God. Think about it. He says, did God really say? He adds to the word of God. God never said, did God really say? God actually said, right? He said uh, he didn't use that terminology. This is what legalism does in the church. Legalism adds to the word of God. It twists it, but it twists it by taking God's commands and adding them to the gospel. For example, uh, saying that we're not saved by, by grace through faith. You're saved by faith, but you also need to do these things or look this way or do this. The Bible never says that, and we can manipulate it and add to. And Satan's had his way in the church through legalism and adding rules and regulations to the grace of God. The serpent also diminishes the word of God. He says, you won't surely die. He takes God's word, something God never said, and he diminishes it. And says, no, because God had told Adam and Eve, if you eat from the tree, you will die. And he says, well, you won't surely die. Right? So it kind of sounds the same, but it's the exact opposite. He diminishes it. This is the opposite of legalism. This is what licentiousness does. This is where people tell you you can do whatever you want. You belittle sin. Basically, you can use God's grace as a free sin card. Hey, you can do whatever you want. There's no consequences to your actions. God's okay with you walking in sin. No. But that's what the serpent tells Adam and Eve. Not only that. He lies. He flatly contradicts the word of God. He denies God's word, but when he denies God's word, listen, it relies on a willing listener to accept it, to take it in. It relies on Eve's inability to call out what is true and what is not true. And the serpent found a willing listener in Adam and Eve, and he implied uh, that God was withholding something good. From then. Not only does he attack the character of God, not only does he twist the word of God, but he just lies. That is his characteristic. That is his craft throughout the Bible. That's his strategy. He tells Eve that God is holding out on her by not letting her eat from the tree. It's a lie. God's given Eve everything she needs for full satisfaction, and he is fully sufficient in her life. But the crafty serpent comes in and somehow twists that to make her seem like she needed more to experience abundant life. He tells Eve that sin carries no consequence, that you will not surely die if you eat from this tree. He, he, he twists her mind to think that sin doesn't come with devastating consequences. And if there's one thing that the Bible teaches us from Genesis to Revelation, it's that when we rebel against God and live for ourselves in selfishness and sin, it hurts people, it hurts us, and it disobeys God, and it robs him of his glory. He also tells Eve that you can become equal to God, that if you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God. If you notice, this tree is called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? So you have two trees in the middle of the garden, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only tree that you can eat from to experience the tree of life is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does that mean? It's kind of complicated, but think about it. It means that as long as God is the Lord of our life, the God of our life that's discerning good and evil, and we're aligning ourselves to Him, 
then we can experience abundant life. But the moment we try to eat from the tree, the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and we try to step in the place of God and be the discerner, uh, the dictator of what's good and evil, then we are banned from the garden and we can no longer experience the tree of life. You see, God doesn't make room for other gods. There is one God, and there's one God in our lives, and it's either the God of the Bible, and we can experience the abundant life that he has for us, or we're going to step in the place of God, and we're going to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And when we do that, though it seems good, it separates us from the tree of life that God intends for us. You know, Satan is a master salesman. Uh, many of you uh, ha- have been to a, a used car dealership or a car dealership, and maybe you've embraced a good salesman. One of the things that a good salesman can do is he can lure you in to buy something that maybe be a little bit out of your price range, or he can show you different things about uh, the car. It doesn't just have to be a car salesman, be a house, whoever. A good salesman can make you look at something and want it. It's almost the, the covetousness of having it. He can make it look good and, and taste good and feel good. Basically, this is what Satan does with, with Eve. It is he, 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 he plays on her sensuality, which is her senses, so that she can begin to look and see and taste and feel to the point where she's not thinking about what's good and bad in the eyes of God. She's thinking about what temporary is good, what temporary tastes good, what looks good, what promises fulfillment in the moment. And that's how he works. That's what he does. And listen, my prayer for you as your pastor is that you would not trade eternal pleasure for a moment of temporary satisfaction. Because God's offer is so much better, but sin in a temporary moment can promise so much. But listen to me, it always overpromises and it always underdelivers. And you know that. We know that from experience. We've all been there. I'm not preaching as somebody who's not fallen, who's not bit from the same fruit that Adam and Eve have bit from. And when you get to the other side, it doesn't give you what it promises. I like to think if Adam and Eve would have known all of the consequences of that sin, that the whole world would be cursed because of it, they wouldn't have done it. But listen, I've taught you, I've preached, I know the consequences of sin, but I still struggle with it every day. It is attractive in our hearts. It is very attractive for us. Every time we face temptation from the serpent, these are the core components of the lie that he tells. Write these down. Number one, God doesn't love you or he's not trustworthy. He'll always come with that. Because if he can get you to believe that God doesn't have your best in mind, that he doesn't love you, that his word is not true, that his ways are not leading to life, then we'll do anything after that. The second lie is this. You know better than God. Honestly, you would make a better God. He can trick us into thinking that if we could do what we wanted to do and we could be the God and Lord of our life, that our life would truthfully be better. But we're not created for us to sit on the throne of our life. God designed it so that we would experience fulfillment and true freedom as we walked in His ways and He was the God of our life. Three, don't worry about judgment. There's no consequences for your sin. Just just do it. It's not going to hurt anybody. Nobody's going to know. He gives us these lies. And in order for us to buy into them, we have to believe them. So here's my question for you. What foothold are you giving Satan in your life? 
What lie is the enemy convincing you to believe? Because listen, we're all susceptible to it. We got to know if we're living for God, then we have an enemy that wants to come. And John 10.10 tells us he wants to kill, he wants to steal, and he wants to destroy you. He does not have your best in mind. He wants to destroy your life in Christ. And honestly, it depends on us and the power of the Holy Spirit in us to fight against him. So my encouragement is if you want to resist the temptation of the devil, I want to give you a few things. The first one is this. We must know and trust the character of God. We got to know him. I'm not talking about you got to know what I say about him. I'm talking about you got to know him. You got to read your Bible. You got to study God's word, not to get a little nugget for your day, but to know the God of the Bible, to build a foundation for your life that when all hell breaks loose in it, it's not going to shake you because you know God, you know his goodness, you know his sovereignty, you know his plans that he's working things out for our good and for his glory we got to know and trust the character of God. Number two, we, we must know and believe the Word of God. we got to know God's Word, the promises of God's Word. It's impossible to recognize the lies of the enemy if we don't know the truth. It's impossible to recognize the lies of the enemy if we don't know the truth. I'm not talking about know it when we read it. I'm talking about know it in here so that when the lie comes, on the fly, we can quote the Word of God in our hearts and in our minds to defeat the lie. Number three, we must recognize Satan and his lies. Don't be unaware. If you are living for God, he is going to attack you. He's going to tell you lies. Hey, you don't need to live your life in community. Hey, hey you, don't, you don't need to spend time with God. Hey, it's okay. Nobody's going to know about this behind closed doors. Just, just do it. He's going to come. And he, 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 he makes himself appear as if he loves you and he wants what's best for you. But the Bible is so clear. He wants to destroy you. He wants to steal your joy. And he wants to kill your satisfaction in God. So not only the nature of sin, does it include the craftiness of a serpent? We can't just blame the serpent because we got some part in it too, right? Many people, they blame Satan for every sin in the world. But in order for Satan to slip in, it took a willing heart, a human heart heart letter b the nature of sin also includes the sin in the human heart we got to know that it's not just about the serpent we can't just blame him this passage also teaches us a lot about the human heart listen to verse six it says when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and it was pleasing to the eye and it was also desirable for gaining wisdom she took some and she ate it she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. You know, it's not just Adam and Eve that, that this passage is explaining. This would be the passage that would echo throughout the entire Bible, and we're going to see it. The same sin that they gave into is the same sin that you and I give into. It's the same sin that until God glorifies us and makes us perfect and takes away our sin nature that we will all struggle with. We have to come to grips with the fact that each of us are susceptible to sin. We are attracted to it. It looks good to all of us. To say that it doesn't look good to you is to lie. There is a part of you that loves sin. Write this down. The only reason that sin has any power in mine and your life 
is because we love it. That's the only reason it has a grip on our heart. That's the only reason that it has any power in our life is because we have an attractiveness, a love for it. Notice how the passage describes Eve's interaction with the fruit that represents sin. She saw that it was what? Good for food. First John calls it the lust of the flesh, right? It's desirable. It tastes good. It, it looks good. Not only is it good for food, but it was pleasing to her eye, right? It, 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 it met what she wanted from when she looked at it. It looked delicious. It looked like it was going to fulfill her. It appeared as if it was going to give what she wanted. And then three, it was desirable for gaining wisdom. It seemed good. It's the pride of life. It, it, it promised things that, that she thought was going to satisfy her. And this is the issue with sin, is it looks good to us because we love it, because we have an indwelling sin. You know, the difference between us and Adam and Eve is Adam and Eve experienced an external temptation. But the Bible teaches from here on out, now that you and I are born from the same mom and dad, Adam and Eve, that we have indwelling sin in us, right? So Adam and Eve weren't born into sin, so to speak, right? They, they literally, when they fell to sin, it was completely external that then became internal. And then from internal, they made babies and then we kind of inherited. It's why when you have a kid today, you don't have to teach them how to sin, right? We're born into it. The Bible says in, in the mother's womb did we come out uh, from sin. And so we got to understand two sides of this thing. Not only are we affected by sin externally, but internally as well. So externally, this is how sin works in our life. Write these th three things down. We see it, we want it, and we take it. That may seem super simple, but that's, that's the process. That's the pattern of sin in our life. It starts with seeing it. This is why as Christians, we need to be very uh, careful with what we are putting before our eyes. What we're watching the type of environments that we place ourselves into. You don't play with fire, especially when your heart has a desire for the fire. Not only do you see it, but then you desire it, right? You want it. There, there's something about it that causes you to want it. It's attractive to you. And then only from that, it conceives and you give in and you say, I'm going to take it. That's externally. Internally, this is how sin works. It starts with unbelief, right? We have to disbelieve that God is sufficient for us. You know, the greatest way to fight sin in our life is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because if we're fixed on Jesus and he's satisfying the deepest parts of our souls, we're not looking for anything else to satisfy our hearts and souls. It's why I don't teach you exactly how to fight sin, exactly how to fight sin. I teach you one thing. Focus on Jesus, and it'll probably take care of itself. It's not that I don't want to get into the practicality of fighting different types of sins, but what I know is that if you'll focus on Jesus, turn your eyes upon him, the things of this world, the sins of this world will begin to grow dim because the thing that satisfies your soul is what you're looking at and what you're pursuing. And then unbelief turns into idolatry. And what happens is when we disbelieve that God is who he says he is and that God can satisfy, then we begin to put something else on the throne. We begin to look to something else to satisfy it, whether it be money, whether it be sex, whether it be power, whatever it is, control. 
you name it, you know what it is. And then what happens is when we begin to worship it and give our time and money and buy into the lie of idolatry, which is if I had this, I'd be happy. That's the lie of idolatry. Then we rebel against God. We kick him off the throne of our life. And we begin to worship something other than God and rob God of his glory. That is the internal effect of sin. So here's my question. What does this describe in your life? When you think about what you see and what you want and you take, when you think about unbelief and, and, and not believing that God is sufficient for you, and you think about putting something on the throne of your life that's going to control your time, your energy, your money, your thoughts, your affections, when you think about that, what comes to your mind? What sin is it that you have a tendency to flirt with? What idol is it that tends to control your thoughts? What is it that you buy into the lie? If I just had this, then I would be satisfied. If I don't have this, then I don't want to live anymore. What is it that you put on the throne of your life? Tim Keller, one of my favorite pastors, points out that there are really four root idols behind pretty much every sin in this world. They're power, control, comfort, and approval. Power, control, comfort, and approval. Deep in the human heart, the four idols that seem to be there for all humans are those things. Power, a longing for influence and recognition. Uh, control, a longing to have everything to go according to my plan, what I want, how I want things to go. Comfort, a longing for pleasure, that we think if a, a great pleasurable vacation is going to give us what only God can give us. Approval, a longing to be accepted or desired by people or by anything. Those are the core idols that exist inside the human heart, which brings me to letter C. Once we're willing to be honest about what it is that we're flirting with or what it is that controls our thoughts, uh, we got to understand our response to sin. Instinctively, you and I respond to being exposed in sin pretty much the same way. This is one of the joys of, of being a pastor. That you, you get to see people at their worst, but then you also get to see God redeem it and create a work and do something incredible in their life. But usually there's a process to it, right? Doesn't happen overnight. Doesn't happen in my life overnight. When God exposes my sin or shows me an area of my life where I'm not focused on Him, I respond in certain ways. Let's read it. Verse 7. What does it say? Then the eyes of both of them were opened after they ate the fruit and they realized that they were naked. They didn't know they were naked before that. So they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. Tried to cover it up. They tried to hide their nakedness. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid, underline that, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man, where are you? He didn't say that because he didn't know. He said that because it was, he was addressing the man. He was coming to him to have conversation. Don't you love that God runs to us in our sin and not from us? Verse 10, he answered, I heard you in the garden, this is Adam, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, again, he knew that he had eaten from the tree. God knows everything. But he addresses him in a question to see how he's going to respond to the sin. 
We're not defined by our sin. We're defined by how we respond to our sin. That's what God wants to see. That's what confession and repentance are all about. He said, the man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. What's he doing? He's blame shifting. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? Then the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. What's she doing? Blame shifting. She's blaming it on the serpent. So here's the reality for all of us. We can learn from this. It teaches us a lot about how we respond to sin. When sin is exposed or you're caught in sin, whatever way it is, if God convicts you or whether somebody catches you, usually we go through a process. The first three responses are wrong responses, but they always happen. The first response is we try to hide it. We try to deny it or ignore it or covered up in some sort of way by going to church or by uh, putting on church clothes to cover up the sin in our hearts, but it doesn't work. The second way we respond is we justify it. Well, if you just understood, or man, it's not that bad, everybody else is doing it. Or the third way is we blame shift. It's not my fault, it's their fault. It's the serpent's fault. It's the woman's fault. However, God wants us to respond in fourth, the right way, repentance, which means to turn from our sin, to confess our sin, to be willing to be honest about our sin, and to turn from it and turn back to God. And here is the honest truth. It's impossible to repent of a sin that we are unwilling to be honest about. This is one of my biggest issues with the church today. Is it's, it's, it's turned, it, it, it literally... Most people, when, when, it comes, when church comes to mind, their immediate thought is, I need to put on my best. I can't be honest. I need to look a certain way. If these people knew this about me, then they wouldn't accept me. It's the opposite of God. The opposite of God. God, the only prerequisite to God doing a work in your life is you being honest. And the church should be a place where it's okay to be not okay. It's okay to be honest about your sin because God is a person where it's okay to be honest about your sin. The hospital has always been designed to be a hospital for the sick. Always. And that's exactly what God, and here's the awesome thing. God gives us some incredible promises about repentance that when we're unwilling to be honest about our sin, we miss this experience all together. Namely, forgiveness and refreshing. And who in here doesn't want forgiveness and to be refreshed? We all do. God says the pathways through repentance. Listen to 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. And He will purify us from all unrighteousness. Acts 3.19 Repent then and turn to God. Why? So that your sins may be wiped away as far as the east is from the west. And that times of refreshing may come for the Lord. Listen, when we're willing to get on our knees and confess our sin and be honest and be open and naked before God with everything exposed, here's the honest truth. He knows everything about us anyway. And He doesn't run from us. He runs to us. And part of experiencing the gospel for all it is, the gospel that will change my life and change your life, is when we humble ourselves, expose ourselves before God, and allow Him to do a work in our heart. Listen, that's what He does. He forgives us. He refreshes us. He makes us new. 
He doesn't kill Adam and Eve, though they deserve to be killed. His holiness says, sin against a holy, eternal God is eternal punishment, damnation, death. But our God is a God of grace and mercy. From the beginning, He came after, almost as the prodigal son story in the New Testament. The son had rebelled and ran off, but God came running to him. They met. Because he loved him. The same thing is true in the garden. God's not scared of your sin. He actually already knows it. So here's my question. How are you responding to the sin in your life? That's the most important question I can ask you as a pastor. Matter of fact, if you don't hear anything else I ask, or anything else in this sermon, it's that question. How are you responding to the sin in your life? You say, Billy, I don't have sin in my life. The Bible would say you're a liar. So the question we need to ask, preacher, new believer, lost person, seasoned saint, wherever you are, is how are you responding to the sin in your life? Because forgiveness and refreshing and walking with God depend on it. Are you hiding from it? Are you justifying it? Are you blame shifting it? Are you falling at the feet of the Jesus, Jesus in repentance? Write this down. The pathway to spiritual growth in my life is repentance. If I want to grow in my relationship with God, the way, the pathway to growth is through repentance. The second thing we see in Genesis chapter 3 is the result of sin. The result of sin. Verse 14, so the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have not done this, cursed are you, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I wonder what a snake looked like before it crawled on its belly. Verse 15. And I will put enmity, underline that, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. And he, underline that, he, that pronoun right there, singular pronoun. It's talking about a person. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. He gave those consequences to the serpent. Then he goes on to the woman. To the woman, verse 16, he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. And all the women said, Amen. With the painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam, he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Let me pause there. Adam's biggest mistake was not that he listened to his wife. It was that he didn't listen to God. A lot of men manipulate that scripture to make it about them. But the biggest issue in Adam's life was that he was standing there knowing what God had said to him and didn't do anything about it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through your painful toll, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. You will eat the plants uh, of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken... For dust you are, and to dust you will return. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he had drove the man out, he placed him on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword uh, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. They were banished from the garden. One of the most devastating pictures in the entire Bible. Perfect fellowship with God, now gone out of the picture until a later time. Think back with me to Genesis 1. Everything was good. Everything was perfect. And then in an instant, we see God's perfect garden, perfect fellowship 
tainted by sin. And we see the devastating result of sin, not just in the garden, but in the world for all time. The world that we experience today, if you track it all the way back, it exists the way it does because of this sin. A few things that we see uh, that are devastating results of sin in the world. Uh, Letter A, separation. Adam and Eve were separated. They were banned from the garden. They were separated from God. They were separated from perfect fellowship with God, His perfect presence. They were separated from God's design, everything that God had created them for. They were separated from that. They were separated from the tree of life, life life the way God intended for them to live. They were now separated from it as a wanderer trying to find their way. Let her be brokenness. There was relational brokenness between God and man. Instead of running to God, Adam now runs from God in fear and shame and hiding. That's in you and I. We naturally run from God instead of running to God. Relational brokenness between husband and wife. The enmity. There was, there was dissension. Instead of their relationship being characterized by a loving partnership and glorifying God together, we see selfishness and enmity and blame shifting. And strife. Any person in the room that's married knows how hard is it to walk in perfect partnership with your spouse to glorify God when both of you guys are sinful and selfishness. And God uses it for holiness in our life, but it's hard work. It's not something that just happens. Relational brokenness between brothers. In the very next chapter, we'll see relational brokenness between Cain and his brother Abel. Cain murders Abel, his own brother, out of jealousy. And hatred. Let her see pain. We see pain come into the world. Not only pain in childbirth, I believe it's symbolic of all the pain that would come into the world, whether it be uh, murder in the next uh, chapter, or lying, or anger, or rape, or divorce, or everything evil in the world today uh, came from this moment. Everything wrong can be backtracked to this original sin. And then letter D, finally, ultimately death. It was spiritual death, emotional death, physical death, relational death, eternal beings now with a death sentence. What a dark day. I love how Pastor Tony Evans, one of my favorites, explains it. Listen up. He says, God promised that eating from the tree would lead to death, and he was right. The manifestation of that death was emotional, spiritual, relational, environmental, ultimately physical. Adam and Eve knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together for clothing. They had been naked up to this point and unashamed, but suddenly they were full of shame and guilt. So their nakedness was marked uh, was a mark of emotional death rather than life. Fear crept in too, another sign of emotional death. When they heard God approaching, they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The spiritual relationship that nourished them and should have brought them their greatest joy had become a terror to them. What a shame. We see the seeds of death even go farther as God issued punishments for Adam and Eve's sin. Their rebellion led to relational death as God promised that the relationship between man and woman would become a battle rather than a partnership. We even see economic death as God promised the work, the work would be, become painful labor rather than fruitful process, the fruitful process that he intended. And while Adam and Eve wouldn't drop dead on the spot, their coming biological death was now guaranteed. They were like flowers cut off from the plant, and the process of physical death 
had become. I want you to write these things down. Anyone who tells you that sin does not have devastating consequences is a liar. Any person, any book that tells you, any voice that tells you that sin does not have devastating consequences is a liar. Anyone who tells you that your sin is not negatively affecting those around you is a liar. Anyone who tells you that sin will not destroy your life is a liar. This was a dark moment for humanity. It was a heartbreaking moment. God's perfect creation choosing sin over him, over his perfect plan. It broke the heart of God. But I'll end with this. You and I both know the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, shines the brightest in the darkest moments. And in this dark moment, what we get is a glimpse of the hope of the gospel, which is number three. We, we see God come in with the hope of the gospel. Adam and Eve's sin did not catch God off guard. God knew that they would sin, and God had a plan before the foundations of the earth. And that plan was Jesus. Jesus, the plan that would glorify God more than anything else probably in the whole world could do. We see this, this pronoun, he would come and crush the head of Satan in verse 14 and 15. And then we see Adam at the end. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and he clothed them. This passage shows us that there's a seed that we need to know about, S-E-D. There's a sacrifice that we need to know about. And then there's a Savior that we need to know about. These are the things that we need to understand, that God would send a seed from the womb of Eve. wouldn't be your son. It'd be your great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson. And he would be born to Mary. And his name would be Jesus. And he would be the sacrifice that John would call the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. You know, to get a, a, a skin to cover Adam and Eve, there had to be a sacrifice. I'm going to assume it was a lamb because it was foreshadowing a lamb that would come and that he would be sacrificed for you and I. And then finally, a savior. That's exactly why Jesus had to come. You know, you and I can't save ourselves. We are hopeless in a dark world. But God, through the power of his gospel, through his grace, he sent Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21, to be sin. To, to take on our sin and be punished so that you and I could be the righteousness of God. Romans 5 teaches us that death came into the world through one person. That one person, Adam. Righteousness came into the world through one person. That one person is Jesus. So I don't know where this, this message finds you this morning. I don't know what the fall speaks to you. It, it can be a very sobering message, but here's the thing I can tell you. The hope of the gospel is brighter than what we see in the fall. I'm so thankful for a God whose mercy outweighs mine and your sin. So I don't know what your next step is today, but here's what I know. The story of the gospel calls you and I to respond, always. It may be responding in generosity. It may be responding in praise and worship. It may be responding in repentance. It may be responding in salvation. So I don't know where you are this morning, but I want you to bow your head. This morning you've heard the story of sin. You've heard how sin came into the world. You've heard how God promised a Savior that wasn't His backup plan. It was His plan from the very beginning.
and you've heard that that Savior came for you and he took the punishment that you deserve. He lived a life that you couldn't live so that you and I could receive his righteousness through faith so that we could be reconciled back to this perfect fellowship with God in a very tainted world. And so if you're here this morning, you'd say, Billy, that's me. I've never received the gospel. I've never believed that God has done everything necessary through Christ to save me. And this morning you'd say, Billy, that's what I want to do. I want to turn from my sin and turn to God for the very first time and surrender my life to Jesus. If that's you, would you just lift your hand? I want to know. I want to pray for you. You'd say, Billy, that's me. This morning, God's speaking to my heart. I know it. And I want to respond. So, Father, for the rest of us, Lord, would you create in us a heart that responds to your gospel? God, that every time we hear it, it's not a a message that just sinks into our head but misses our heart. But, God, every time we hear it, we go back to a moment where we recognize just how sinful we were. And we recognize the good God that pulled us out of that sin and brought us into his life, his purpose, his salvation. Father, would you move our hearts? God, would you move us to be a people that walk in repentance? God, that are honest about our sin, that confess our sin. God, that walk in refreshment and that walk in forgiveness. And God, that we wouldn't spread sin to people as Adam and Eve did, but we would spread salvation to people because of the good God that you are. Father, we love you. We thank you for our time together, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here. We'll see you back next week.